We are going to be in Luke chapter 16 this morning, continuing in our parable series. Um, I think I might have one more after this. Um, there's more parables, but uh, we're not going to do them all. And uh, so Luke 16, 19 to 31 will be our text, and you can turn there in your Bibles. But uh, as we've been going through this series, Jesus has had a number of parables that um, are about us having an over-preoccupation with possessions. And we did one last week. You remember the rich man and his barns, and he had a bumper crop, and so he wondered what to do with all his blessing, and he built bigger barns. And then that night, his soul was demanded of him, right? And now, this time, we have a parable today about another rich man and another death and another warning. It's not about what to do and what is happening on this side of the grave and how we are to be rich towards God with the blessings that we have, although we do need to do that. Maybe this is the same rich man. I don't know. That'd be kind of clever if you were doing a movie and you made the rich man who built bigger barns be in this rich man too. Could be. But this isn't about wealth on this side of the grave. The wealth here and the rich man used in this parable is actually a literary device that, that Jesus is using in the parable as a warning that worldly wealth and satisfaction and comfort and health and the things that we have in this world, Jesus is going to use narratively in comparison to poverty and suffering in order to emphasize a possible reversal in what a person could face if they go to the grave unprepared. So as we read this parable, understand that it is about wealth and it is about poverty, but it's actually, and parables aren't allegories, but I'll, I'll dare to use the word allegory, The one that appears wealthy physically is not so wealthy spiritually. The one that appears in poverty physically is not in poverty spiritually. And we have the, as always in these parables, the reversal and the rug getting yanked out about halfway through. And we'll see how that happens. This is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. And we'll just read it and then work through it. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you are... You in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm, in order that you who would pass from here to there may not be able, and none may come across from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment." But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate these scriptures for us. That when your word is preached, your voice is heard. And I pray that we hear your voice today in this message. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
In Ecclesiastes 7.2, it says, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone, and the living should take this to heart. And this is why Jesus is telling this parable. Because death is everyone's destiny, and the time to think about death is while you're still alive. Because Jesus is going to teach some truths in this parable about death and the afterlife. And he's going to teach us that there are things and conditions about that death and that afterlife that we have to be aware of in this life before we get there. He's going to talk about matters of eternal destiny. And and don't we all wonder about it, right? Aren't we all curious? I would think that libraries full of books have been written about the afterlife. Every religion and science has speculated about it. Jesus spoke about it often enough, and everything Jesus in Scripture says about the afterlife is consistent, and this parable is no different. And this parable, just like the parable of the Good Shepherd and other parables, is going to illuminate doctrine or truth that other Scriptures teach about what is happening at death and after death. And this parable contains in it many insights that I hope we'll see today and that on one hand will point us towards the truth that is in Scripture and on the other hand will dispel any errors that we may have fallen into thinking about the afterlife or listening to Oprah or whatever on TV or reading, you know, Love Wins or one of these other books or something else where people are talking about, you know, or, or what was that one where the kid went to heaven? can't remember the name of it. Anyway... There's a few of them. But we, we read these books and everybody's curious about what's happening. And, and, and this parable is from the mouth of Jesus. This is Jesus talking about his own truth about the afterlife. And so it's going to point us towards truth and dispel errors that we may have fallen into believing about our life after death. And so we'll go through this kind of a sentence at a time, a verse at a time, as we have with other parables, and just allow it to unfold for itself its truth to us. And so it begins this way. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. Now last week, remember, Jesus told us about a rich man with that bumper crop and he built bigger barns and his life was demanded of him. And here we have a a rich man clothed in purple and fine linen. And I'm sure many of you know that the purple is significant. Purple was a very expensive dye to have at that time. It it came from a couple of different sources, but the main one being a specific shellfish uh, where they got the dye from and it was hard to get. And so if you were clothed in purple every day, you were rich and you had linen that lined those garments, uh, then you uh, were... uh, A fine example, a fine specimen of your wealth was in your clothing, right? And and he's identified by his clothes. And and we still do that today, right? We still identify each other by our clothes. When I was away a couple of weeks ago, um, I discovered that I needed a new suit because Wendy told me I need a new suit. And uh, (laughs) and, uh, so we were looking for for suits, and so we stopped in at the local haberdashery and... uh, they don't call them haberdashies anymore. I don't know, but uh, that's how old my suit is. Um, <laughs> now, we, we stopped in at the mall, and we were looking at suits, and, uh, and so I went to Tip Top Taylor. They had a sale on. We went to Tip Top and uh, looked at a suit, but I never buy the first thing I see. I always want to look around. That suit was on sale. It's 250 bucks. Good price for a suit, right? No problem. We looked around a couple other places, went to a store, went in and said, oh, yeah, I'm looking for a suit, whatever. They said, oh, it's over in this section. Put on this suit. I said, just looking for a simple suit. Okay, try this on. I can't remember. It was like $1,200, I think, this suit, right? So I said, well, I'll put it on. I want to feel like what a $1,200 suit feels like. It feels exactly like a $250 suit, okay? (laughs) 
It just says Hugo Boss inside. That's the only difference is the label on the pocket that I could detect. Right? But this man was known by his clothing, right? And we do that as well. We wear good clothing. And then it says it, he feasted every day. This guy had the best parties. And the, the Greek word here, it's a really long Greek word here that's the same word that's used in the parable of the prodigal son when the father kills the fatted calf to have a party to celebrate his son's return. And this guy does this every day, not just to celebrate some momentous family occasion. He feasts like that every day. So he is a celebration party Every day. And that would be significant, again, to the listeners of this, because is it, is it really every day, like including on the Sabbath? Every day he feasts this way? Even on fasting days he feasts this way? So this man is clearly more concerned with his satisfaction than anything or anyone else, and certainly more so than God. And it's not explicitly mentioned in this text, but we have also understand that he had his health. He had clothes, he had food, he had health, he had wealth. And these are all good things, but they're not supposed to be the main thing. And the problem with this man is that he's made his wealth and his food and his health and his clothing his main thing. They are his life. He lived in luxury every day and kept it to himself. And we know that he kept it to himself because Jesus then immediately mentions his gate. The next verse says, And at his gate... And it's not the city gate or the temple gate, and that's always how I remember this parable. It never occurred to me until I was studying this that it's his gate. This isn't, the, a, a, this isn't a beggar at the gate to the city. This isn't a beggar at the portico to the temple. This is a beggar at the man's gate. This man has so much of an estate and so much stuff, he's got his own set of gates to keep his stuff to himself. And so he has an entrance to his residential courtyard. He lives in a mansion. And inside the gate is luxury, and outside the gate is poverty. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. So there's a beggar, and he's incredibly poor. And he, it says he was laid at the gate. This man can't walk, okay? He's crippled. He can't actually get to the gate himself. He's laid there by somebody else. And he's covered with sores. And they're probably what we call bed sores or pressor ulcers because he can't move. And so he gets these bed sores. And he's malnourished. And malnourishment is linked to increased risk of bed sores. I googled that. But I don't recommend you Google it and click the image tab. Okay? The nurses here know what I'm talking about. You do not want to see pressure ulcers. You don't want to see bed sores. Right? Don't Google that before lunch, I tell you. And I spared you the picture on the overhead. But this man is crippled. He's covered in sores. He cannot move. He's malnourished. And his name is Lazarus. This is the only parable where Jesus gives someone a name. Nobody else in any other parable has a name. And it leads some commentators to believe that maybe Jesus here is actually borrowing the circumstances of actual events in order to create a parable. In other words, maybe there is a real Lazarus beggar and there was a real rich man and they actually did die. And if anybody was to know of the events of these people's lives in their life and in the afterlife, it would be Jesus, right? So, I mean, maybe this is a real situation that Jesus knows about. It's certainly real enough. And he's just borrowing what he knows of this circumstance in order to make a parable for us. But in any event, Lazarus here has a name. The rich man is just a faceless millionaire, but Jesus speaks the name of Lazarus. And who knows our name? Perhaps this is the significance. Remember a couple of weeks ago, the good shepherd knows his sheep. He knows them by name. 
This man, Jesus knows his name. He doesn't know the rich man. He's just this faceless billionaire of some sort. But Lazarus has a name. And it's an interesting name. It's the Greek version of Eliezer, or God my helper, or God has helped, Eleazar. And it sure doesn't look that way, right? I mean, it's an ironic name for this man. It sure doesn't look like God is the helper, but God is his helper. Because everything that Jesus does and everything in Jesus' kingdom is upside down. And that's part of the lesson here. That's part of the name. That this man is helped by God. Blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are the sad. Rich are the poor. Exalted are the humble. Right? Doesn't this sound just like Jesus' economy? Jesus turns everything upside down. And so you have this poor beggar at the gate whose name is God has helped. And so we should, the light bulb should be going on. The flag should be waving in our brain. We should be expecting something is going on here with this name that is chosen for this man, Lazarus. That Jesus is using physical circumstances in this story to speak pointedly about spiritual realities. Not everything is as it seems here. The rich man is not necessarily blessed. The poor man is not necessarily reprobate. But we can imagine the rich man passing his gate every morning. Oh, there's old Eliezer, right? God sure has helped him, eh, boys? Right? I'm sure that joke didn't get old too fast. Right? And on top of that, we know another Lazarus who had some experience with death. And we'll get to that Lazarus a little bit later. But this rich man has not heeded the warning of the parable of the rich fool in his barns. He's rich, but he's not rich towards God. He's not heeded the parable of the shrewd manager, which Jesus concludes by saying, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourself in eternity, just earlier in Luke 16. This rich man has ignored the principle that Jesus gave, that when you have a party, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind in Luke 14. This rich man has ignored all of those warnings and all of those principles. When he has a party, he invites the rich. He ignores the crippled and the lame and the blind. This rich man is doing none of that. This man, Lazarus, this poor beggar, it says that he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. He just just wanted the scraps that the dogs would normally get. He'd be happy with dog food, but the rich man actually treats the dogs better than he treats this human being. And as the garbage bins, you can imagine as the garbage men are coming to pick up the, the refuse from the party and they're hauling the garbage bins out through the gate to the curb, this man wishes he could just eat out of the garbage. The leftovers of this man's parties and the garbage of this man's parties is better than what Lazarus gets. And then it says, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The dogs got the scraps and then the dogs came and licked his sores. And you can read this sentence either way that you want. You can read it like, is it good that they're licking his sores? Like the dogs are having more compassion on the man than the rich man is? Does the licking of the sores bring relief? Is it like a good lick? And if so, then you can read it that the dogs, again, have more compassion than the rich man. Or is it a bad lick, right? Like, yuck, the dogs are licking his sores and he's lame and he can't, he can't even get the dogs away from him and they're licking his sores. It's disgusting. And then that, if you read it that way, then it just amplifies his misery. So you can read that sentence either way, whether you think it's a good lick because you're a dog person or whether you think it's a bad lick because who wants a dog near them? Um, you can read it either way. But regardless of how you read it, this man's only companions are dogs. Right? And, and similarities and echoes of other parables of the prodigal son 
right? And as he's away in the far country and loses everything, his only companions are pigs, and he longs to eat what the pigs have. This man longs to eat the scraps of the tables, of the rich man's table, and his only companions are dogs. And dogs and pigs are about equally disrespected in Jewish culture. They're scavengers, and they're unclean. But then the reversal of the situation comes to pass in the story. Jesus has created this incredible, visceral experience of how wealthy the man is and how poor Lazarus is. And he's done that on purpose because he's using physical reality to create a spiritual picture for us. And the reversal comes now. Death changes everything. It says the poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried and in Hades. So Jesus reverses the physical circumstances to highlight the spiritual reality, and that's the purpose. It's not to say that the rich are bad and poor are good, although people could use the parable for that. We know that that's not some sort of simplistic principle in the Bible because there's many other verses, and even here, that the man is in paradise with Abraham. Right? Abraham wasn't poor, so it can't just be that you know rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. Abraham was like the richest man alive at one point, practically. You know, King David, Solomon, right? It's not about being rich, and it's not about being poor. There's something else going on here. There's an emphasis that's set up here to, to, to point the finger at spiritual realities. He set up this dramatic reversal in the sense that the rich man is very rich and the poor man is very poor. One has perfect satisfaction, the other has perfect misery, and Jesus makes the distinction so wide because he wants to show the reversal that now is going to come about in their circumstances is equally great. The the situation that they experienced in life is going to have an equally great distance or a greater even distance in the afterlife. The perfect satisfaction of the rich man is now perfect misery and the perfect misery of Lazarus is now perfect satisfaction. So the poor man is at Abraham's side. Literally, says he was carried to Abraham's bosom. Now that's an old word we don't use much anymore, bosom. And it's not really associated with men much at all. But the, the picture here is that this man is reclined at Abraham with his head on Abraham's chest. It's a, it's a picture of familiar intimacy. This man has gone to his reward. He's, he's achieved the greatest outcome that could, could happen for a Jewish man. He's gone to be with the forefathers, like a father and a son. And the rich man has died, and he ends up in Hades. And they lived very different lives, but they both end up dead. But this is an important piece to our understanding of the afterlife is they don't end up equal. Death is not the great equalizer. After you die, things don't just suddenly reset to everybody being equal. It doesn't just give everybody the same end, as both of these men find out. But that's a common error, that's a common misconception that we would hear from many different sources and different religions and different people who are speaking about the afterlife. Oh, however you live, you know, once you die, well, he's gone to a better place. Really? Not everybody goes to a better place. Death does not equalize everything. Jesus is specifically saying here is that there is inequality after death. We don't end up the same. And both these men find that out. It says, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And so, so when we die, we don't all get the same treatment. No matter who we were, what we did, or how we lived, or what we believed. Nothing in Scripture ever says that we all get a nice, comfortable reward no matter what. That's universalism in various forms. And Scripture can't support it. 
And remember now, the actions of this man are reflections of spiritual reality. In other words, his punishment is not because of his actions in life. His actions are the evidence of his spiritual arrogance and resistance towards God. And it's important that we understand this. God is not saying, oh, you behave badly and so you get punished. What we see here is that this man had a prideful heart and he had no time for God and he had lots of other idols besides God. And so it was because of the condition of his heart that he acted the way he did in life and his situation after life is because of the condition of his heart, not because of what he did. But death does not clean our slate. The decisions we make now in time impact our life in eternity. And we see the conditions of the rich man's heart still even while he's in Hades, even while he is in hell. Because look what he says. He says, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Oh, there's that beggar Lazarus, right? Send him over, Abraham. Right? This guy doesn't even speak to Lazarus directly. He thinks he's on par with Abraham. It's like, oh, you know, we're like rich, you know, good Jewish forefathers. I am on par with you, Abraham, and I see you've got that servant boy, Lazarus, there. Send him over to cool my tongue. He doesn't even have the the humility to speak to Lazarus directly. He thinks that he can speak to Abraham. He's not happy about his situation. He realizes he's in anguish, but deep down there's still no humility in this rich man's heart. He's unchanged. He says, I'm in anguish in this flame. Now, is hell going to be literal flames? I don't know, probably not. This is a parable. It's not a travel guide, right? Jesus isn't trying to give us a discourse. (laughs) Jesus isn't trying to give us a scientific discourse on the hell, you know, how big it is, what it's made of, who's there, all of those types of things, right? This is a parable. But whatever it is, and when Jesus speaks of hell in other places allegorically, he always speaks of flame. And it is the anguish of that experience in hell must at least be as bad as burning and flame. It's, it's the allegory, it's the picture that Jesus uses the most. So we don't have to get hung up on whether it's physical flame or not. What we know is that in the Greek language or Aramaic or English, the best that Jesus could come up with is it's like being on fire when you're there. That's, that's the best allegory he could use, and he used it repeatedly. He didn't have any more horrible words at his disposal to conjure in us the picture of the anguish and the torment and the misery of hell. And so he said, it's flames, it's fire, it's like burning alive. That's what it is. Now, whether it literally is or whether it just feels that way, it's not where you want to be. So this man is in anguish in hell. But Abraham says to him, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And so there's something we can learn here, that physical blessing in our life is not always a sign of spiritual rightness with God. You know, just because you can put hashtag blessed on your Facebook posts because you got a new boat, or because you got a great house, or because, you know, all your kids graduated medical school, or whatever it is, Just because you are succeeding in life is not some sort of guarantee that God is blessing your life. He may very well be blessing your life, and it may very well be the blessing of God. But just because you're successful in life does not mean that that translates over into the afterlife. And people who are wealthy and successful in life can often start to think that way, right? You know, they're going to... They're going to pass away, they're going to die, they're going to be buried, they're going to go and, you know, St. Peter will be at the gates of heaven and they'll think they're, you know, getting their reservation at a restaurant 
You know, like, you know, table for two, St. Pete, if, you know, we can just get a nice place by the window where we can, you know, see the water. No, it doesn't work that way. You know, what you experience in this life is not necessarily what you will experience in the next life. This man had it all in this life. He has nothing in the next life. And neither is physical suffering always a sign of physical reprobation or disapproval or discipline. Just because you're suffering in this life does not mean God doesn't love you or that God does not have a plan for you or that God is punishing you. Right? We live in the fallen nature of our sin and in a cursed world. And the curse of this world affects. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Both blessing and drought falls on everybody. And so just because you see somebody who is, you know, has addictions or has sickness or is you know, not wealthy or has family troubles or is divorced or, you know, hasn't got their life all together or things aren't turning out for them. You can't look at them and look down on them and say God is somehow judging them because of the situation that they're in. Our physical experiences are not necessarily pictures of what's happening spiritually, as this parable points out, because the spiritual reality was the exact reverse of the physical. And that lesson would not be lost on Jesus' listeners. And then in verse 26, he goes on, he says, And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may pass across from here to us. Now this chasm is important. It's not important because it can answer the question of, you know, if you're in heaven, can you see people in hell? And can people in hell see you in heaven? I don't know. It doesn't matter. The point is, is that there's this chasm that is fixed, and you don't go from one to the other. There is a chasm between us and God. And that chasm has to be crossed at some point. And Jesus was sent to reconcile and to fix that chasm so that we could cross over, so that Lazarus could be at Abraham's side. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You want to know why Jesus came? Just remember 1 Peter 3.18. This was the purpose of Jesus coming, that He might bring us to God. That's the whole mission. There's a whole bunch of people on the wrong side of the chasm, and I've got to get them over. They can't get across that chasm. I have come to bring you to God. He brought Lazarus to Abraham's side. He brought Lazarus to paradise, to heaven, to God. And if Jesus doesn't reconcile that chasm, then it remains. Jesus is clear. None may cross from there to us. There is no second chance after death. That so many theories and false religions and false gospels and false books will try to teach you that there is somehow a second chance that you are going to get. Whether it's Catholic purgatory, where you're going to pay a certain amount of time for sin and then you'll jump over the chasm... To heaven? No. Jesus says there is this chasm fixed. You can't come across. I can't go there. There's no second chance we learn from this. Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, says Hebrews 9. And he said, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. So this man is finally starting to dawn on him what has happened. Right? It's finally, it's starting to sink in that this is not good. And he knows that his situation is fixed, but he's now worried about 
his brothers, as he should be. We should be worried because it's in this life. He realizes now it's only in this life that we can make a decision that's going to change the outcome. So he says, I beg you, go to my father's house. I have five brothers and warn them. He wants to warn them because he's found out now it's too late. And I don't want them to come to this place of torment. Nobody wants to be in that place of torment for themselves or anybody else. So what is Jesus saying here about death and hell? What, what can we take away from this parable? Understanding that it's a parable, understanding that it's not a scientific explanation of hell or anything else. You know, not getting hung up on the details, but what are the principles here that Jesus is teaching about heaven and hell? The first thing is, is that maybe it's obvious, heaven and hell exist, right? Jesus, when he came, is not trying to mislead us. Jesus talked a lot about hell, and he talked a lot about heaven. Heaven and hell exist. This is a reality of our experience. In this parable or anywhere else, Jesus isn't lying to us when he says, this is a consequence. And there's a situation that's coming that you have to be prepared for. Secondly, one of the things that we learn here is that we maintain our consciousness and our identity and our existence after death. The rich man went someplace and he knew he was someplace. And Lazarus went someplace and he knew he was someplace. And they weren't in the other place. And they knew who they were. So they weren't just annihilated. They didn't just blink out of existence. It's clear here that our consciousness and our personality and who we are continue to exist and that we exist in different places potentially. That's a reality of the afterlife. A third thing is is that death brings division and distinction between people. Everything is not equal after death. Some are in a state of bliss and satisfaction and others are in anguish and torment. Physical, spiritual, both, whatever. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so any version of universalism out there that just says everybody gets to heaven somehow either they go through purgatory and get to heaven or they go to hell but jesus doesn't give up love wins and he keeps preaching to them and they're able to jump across the chasm somehow you know somehow everybody gets there's a hell but it's empty there's a lot of different forms of universalism out there and none of them are supported by what jesus says this parable in all the places that jesus speak makes it clear there are sheep and there are goats there are some that know Jesus and some that do not know Jesus. Did not we even cast out demons and work great miracles in your name? And I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. There are people who can deceive themselves into thinking that they know Jesus when they don't. So we have this distinction after death. There's this great chasm, chasm, the fourth thing, this great chasm between the two that neither can cross. There is no second chance way to get there. Once the chasm is fixed, it's fixed. And finally, hell is something to warn others about. The rich man says, go and warn my brothers. Go and tell my brothers, my clan. Go and tell my people. Go and tell the people that lived the way I lived because I know my brothers are the same as me, right? They all got their mansion and their gates and their beggars and they are doing the same thing I did. Go warn my people. Go warn my clan. Go warn those people that lived foolishly like I did. Warn them so that they can make a different decision in this life than I did. But what's Abraham's answer? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And what's Abraham saying here? What is this? Why does Jesus put this in there? He's saying, quite literally, they have the Bible. They have the Scriptures. They have the Torah. They have the prophets. 
They have the revelation of God. They have everything that they need. We have everything in the Bible that we need to know this, including this parable. So when the question comes up, how did one man get to heaven and the other man get to hell? The answer to the question, Abraham says, is it's there in the Bible. What does the Bible tell us? What does the Bible tell us about why one would end up in hell and one would end up in heaven? There's a whole book written about this. There's there's 66 books written about this. Your brothers haven't been reading it. They haven't been following it. They haven't figured it out. It's not physical poverty that earns you heaven or riches that deny or or is it riches that deny you? God's already spelled out in his scripture the answer to the question, how does one man get to heaven and another man end up in hell? You just need one verse to tell you. You cannot have any other idols. It's the first commandment. You shall have no other God before me. Exodus 23. And all the rest of the Bible is just an expansion on that. There's one God, and he's owed our worship. But we as people put other things as our idols, whether it's Hugo Boss suits or whether it's feasting every day, whether it's our health, whether it's our family, whether it's our gated mansions, whatever it is, fame, achievement, our family, we put other things up as idols and we have other gods that we spend our lives worshiping and we are not rich towards God, although he is rich towards us. If you elevate anything in your life up as an idol and serve that thing day after day for your whole life, you serve another God instead of serving the God of the universe. And God says, clearly, I am not your God. You're your own God. And so instead of having me for eternity, you will have you for eternity. And frankly, we make really lousy gods. We're not and never were supposed to be God. God is supposed to be God. And when we make ourselves God, or we make some other person God, everything gets out of whack. So Abraham says to him, I don't have to send Lazarus. They have their Bibles. They have Moses and the prophets. They're supposed, they already know they're supposed to worship me and not themselves, or their money, or their security, or their fame, or clothing, or stuff, or whatever it is that they think more highly of than me. But the rich man still isn't done. He says, Abraham, no, Abraham, Abraham, listen. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent, right? It's your fault. You haven't given me enough evidence. You haven't given them enough evidence. So if if someone actually went to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham answers them and he said, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There's an important lesson here that Jesus is teaching about the heart of man. This man argues that Scripture is not enough. He argues that the Bible is not enough. He argues that God's revelation is not enough. God hasn't done enough for people to believe they need a miracle. But there was another Lazarus. There was another Lazarus who really was dead, and he really did rise from the dead. Four days later, he he was so dead that he stunk. And Jesus raised him from the dead, and some believed. But most of the others, they just started to plot even harder about how to get rid of Jesus. So even if a man comes from the dead... They will not believe. 
says, if they won't hear, then neither will they be convinced. And Jesus himself rises from the dead into his actual eternal resurrection body. And he's seen in small groups and large groups and by individual, two men on the road to Emmaus, several gathered in the upper room. He has breakfast with some more men on the beach and he comes back for a visit with Paul on the Damascus road. There was more than 500, Paul says, who lived to testify it for decades after. And Abraham in the parable says here, no, even if there is a resurrection from the dead, skeptics will be skeptics, haters will hate. If people don't want to acknowledge God, then they will find a way to not acknowledge God, even if someone comes back from the dead. It's been done, and still people refuse to acknowledge God. And I did it for a big part of my life. I imagine most of you did it for most of your life. Some of you are still doing it, right? You're still finding excuses not to believe what Scripture teaches. You have the Scripture. You have the Word of God. You have the revelation. You have those nights when you lie awake at night knowing who you are and who God is and what He is owed and what you need to repent of, and yet you still have gone on year after year denying God His worship. I argued that God was immoral. I argued that God was illogical. I argued that God was inconsistent. I argued that God was unfair. I argued that God was inscrutable and unknowable. I argued that God was a whole lot of things for many years before I finally admitted that God was. God was. God was God and I wasn't. But when I didn't want God, I found a hundred ways to make excuses as to why I did not owe him my worship. And that's what this parable is saying. Even if someone would rise from the dead, they will not listen. God has given you Moses and the prophets. He's given us the scripture. And they are supernaturally powerful by the Holy Spirit to transform lives. Even if someone comes from the dead, there will be those that don't believe. It's not evidence we lack. Our heart and our mind and our soul speak to the realities of what we read in Scripture. It's not evidence we lack. It's humility. If you will not believe the Bible, you will not believe in Jesus Christ. No matter what miracle God sends to you. That's the reality of heaven and hell. I was careful when I named the series on parables that I didn't say your favorite parables. (laughs) Nobody picks this one as their favorite for some reason. But Jesus in his love needs to warn his people, the scribes and the Pharisees and everybody else who's standing there. He wants them to hear the warning. The decisions you make in this life have eternal consequences. Clothing and food are not life. Worship and repentance and glory to God is life. And the good news is this. We do have the answer. God has shown us everything we need to know. He has shown us that we are His creation, that we possess eternal souls and eternal identities. God has revealed that we were born sinful and lost, but God has also written to us as well of His love and His outrageous grace that someone has risen from the dead, not Lazarus who had to die again, but in fact God's own Son, Jesus Christ, came to live a perfect life that we could not live and to die a sacrificial, atoning death that would pay 
all of the penalty required for our sin. And He would rise again into a new resurrection body as proof of the promise of the Father that His death was sufficient. And God has shown us that His justice is perfect. The sin is paid for perfectly. And His love is absolutely complete on the cross. And all those who confess their weakness, confess their faithlessness, confess their false satisfaction in little gods, in their self-gratification, if they confess that and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then heaven awaits. That's the good news that God has revealed in His Scripture. And everything else, every other conversation, everything else you've heard about heaven and hell is a false gospel. It's a false gospel. It's a false good news, the idea of annihilation, of just everything winks out. People are hoping that when death comes, they will simply cease to exist. That's their gospel. That's the good news that they put their hope in. I hope when I die, I simply cease to exist. That's a false hope. And you put your hope in false gospels, you'll be disappointed. People have put their hope in the idea that love wins, that, yeah, I might go to hell and, you know, I'll pay for some of my sins, but ultimately Jesus is going to come and preach to me in hell. And when I'm in hell and everything is obvious that, you know, I should have made different choices, then I'll repent. And if I repent even in hell, Jesus is going to rescue me. That's a false gospel. Jesus never preached that. It's nowhere in Scripture. If you put your hope in a false gospel, you'll be disappointed. If you put your hope in this gospel, you will surely be satisfied. Don't put your hope in false places. There are no second chances. There is no annihilation. There is only future with God for eternity in satisfaction and joy, or there is future without God in remorse and misery. And Jesus isn't trying to trick anyone. Jesus isn't trying to save Jesus is trying to save those who would hear him. So let those who have ears hear and listen to the truth that Jesus has spoken by his own words in this parable. Today is the day that you put your hope in the true gospel.